your text is on the handout, and someone pointed out to me that there's a huge, odd typo in the middle of this thing. In verse 9, it says, I fear the Lord. Okay? Just a heads up that that's coming, so we can get the sniggles out even now. All right, here we go. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a hero. No, I'm a Hebrew. Another typo in my head. I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of God, and they will stand forever. So Jonah is on the run from God, and he boards this ship not to Nineveh, but to Tarshish. Tarshish, which was in directly the opposite direction from Nineveh, where God had called him to go. But God would not let Jonah go. He wouldn't let him go. He was pursuing him because he loves Jonah. And he won't let you go either. And let me just say that right out of the gate, because in many ways we will identify with Jonah throughout this story. And part of us identifying with Jonah is we need to see the areas in our life where we are running from God. Maybe very blatantly running like we talked about a little bit last week, but also it may be running to other gods besides him. And maybe not even realizing it. Running hard after other identities. Running hard after other Um, salvation, other significance, other than the one true God. And he will not let you go very far. So he sends the storm to slow Jonah's flight down. So you have to picture the scene. As I've been in this passage for the last several weeks, I just, every time I think about it, it's just like a movie. 
So picture just all the modern effects in movies and all the special effects and all the camera angles involved. I picture the camera angle now above this ship and the winds whirling all around it, the waves crashing against the boat. It said it threatened to break up the boat. So this is some severe storm banging back and forth. And so zoom the camera lens now from above the storm into uh, the deck of the boat. And there you have the mariners who are scared. They are scared out of their minds because this was a storm unlike anything that they had ever seen. These guys had seen storms before. This is what they do for a living. They're on the waters. But this one was different. That's why they're kind of like freaking out. This one was different. My mind has also been on that big climactic scene in Moana. I don't know if you've seen Moana. It's great. I would recommend you see Moana. It is so good. And the scene toward the end of the movie where um, she's on this raft, her and, and her friend Maui and their, that little rooster, which I never understood the point of that character, but he's there. And they're on this raft and there's the lava monster, if you've seen it. And she's like coming after them going nuts. And there's, these, there's the lightning everywhere, waves crashing, the raft going up and down. That's what I picture when I picture this boat. You just wonder, how will this ever settle That's the question. And that's exactly what these men are thinking. In fact, they're praying now for the thing to stop. We're told that they're so afraid they start hurling cargo off the side of the boat to lighten the load. And they begin praying each to their own God. They knew something was wrong. They thought maybe someone was mad. And they didn't know who this one was, this God was. And so they all began to pray to their own God. You've heard it said before that there are no atheists in foxholes. There are no atheists on this boat. They're all crying out. They're hoping to be saved. This is sort of like when you're watching a football game and it's really close. It's in the fourth quarter and it's tight. And all of a sudden the camera starts panning the sideline. And what do you see sometimes? Men bow down praying. Because sometimes there's no atheists on the sidelines either. They're hoping for some help. Like somebody get me out of this. To give a more serious example as I was thinking about this. Um, I think particularly some of you who are in sororities and fraternities can identify with some of this. Do you know those late nights that you have if if you live in the hallway or or the house um, where your unbelieving friends hit a wall and they're just looking for somebody to talk to? You ever had those experiences? I, I, I remember having a lot of those experiences when I lived in the fraternity house. And one that comes to mind specifically is this guy named Kyle And I was a very new brother in the fraternity and living in the house for my first semester. And Kyle was this big, strong, tall, respected leader, senior type in the fraternity. And I remember one night in the hallway, Kyle just kind of moping around. And clearly something was wrong. And so I just kind of asked him, I was like, hey, man, you you all right? And he said, no. No. And he invited me to come into his room and we sat down and he shut the door and he started crying. And I remember this conversation so well because the first thing he said was, I think my dad hates me. Kyle knew that I was a Christian and for whatever reason in that moment, he thought it would be okay to talk to me about this. And and he said, I think my dad hates me and I don't know what to do. And I didn't know what to do either at all. But we talked. And we prayed. He was open to praying together about this because people are open to find help from God when the storm hits. 
You see it here. Literally everyone on the boat is praying. Except for one person. The one person notably not praying is the man of God himself. The one clergyman on the boat. The prophet of Yahweh, Jonah. So where's Jonah? Now imagine the camera moving and kind of zooming back from the deck, falling down to the side of the boat and going through a window. There probably wasn't really a window, but just picture it. Going through the window and finding Jonah asleep somewhere inside the boat. Why was he asleep? Here's why. Because running from God is exhausting. It's exhausting. There's a hint in the language here that this wasn't some like nap. Jonah is done. He is spiritually, physically, emotionally exhausted. He is out of it because running from God is draining. And so this guy, this captain goes to Jonah and it's like, hey, bro, what are you doing? Wake up and pray. Don't you care that we're all perishing? Wake up and pray to your God. It's ironic, right? God had called Jonah to point the pagans to God. And now God is using the pagans to point Jonah back to God. You need to pray. And so he gets up and he goes to the deck, but we're not told that he prays at all, actually. Jonah's prayer doesn't come until the next chapter. Why do you think Jonah doesn't pray even now? Here's why. Because it's also hard to pray when you're running from God. It's hard. It's hard to pray when you're on the run. And we often think that God won't listen to us. We think if he knows what I've done, he's done with me. If he really knows the real me, there's no way he'll listen to me. We reason that I'll get my stuff together and then I can turn to God. Maybe in a couple years. Maybe when I kind of put the season behind me, I will be able to talk to him again. Well, the other men in the boat, they don't have time for Jonah sleeping and ignoring his God. So they cast lots, which was kind of an old school way of discerning the direction of the divine. Essentially, they were casting lots. It's kind of like rolling dice and seeing whose number it landed on. But the Israelites knew uh, that even God was sovereign over the role of the lots in this sense. There's a proverb actually in the Bible that says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And wouldn't you know it, the lot fell on Jonah, the prophet of God. And so then the mariners begin to pelt him with all these questions. Who are you? What do you do? Where do you come from? These aren't some random questions like you're filling out a survey for a free Chick-fil-A sandwich. This isn't just some like survey questionnaire. These are questions that essentially are identity questions. Tim Keller points out, That these are questions that are centered around your very personhood, your identity. What's your purpose? What's your place? Who's your race? That's essentially what he's asking. These guys are asking. So it's interesting that Jonah then ignores the first two questions and he goes right for the third one. This says something about how Jonah chiefly identifies himself. We'll talk about that in a second, but let, let me think about it this way. This is something we're guilty of as Americans too. Think about... Um, when you graduate and you go into whatever field you go into, and you go to whatever city you go into and you meet new people, they're going to ask you two questions. What are they? What's your name? And what do you do? Right? What's your name? What do you do? 
why do we do, like, why do we ask that question? It is so common. It's kind of just like the cultural habit for us. In many ways, we most identify ourselves by what we do, by our job. My name's Reed Jones. I'm a campus minister. I want you to assume a lot about me by my position. Does that make sense? I want you to assume that, okay, that means he must be a religious guy. Oh, he must read his Bible. He must pray. He must be a spiritual guy. Oh, he's a, he's a reverend. He's ordained. So that means he's studied for a while. He must be smart. I want you to assume all of these things. Only a quarter of them may be true. But we have these assumptions about our position, our career that we want people to assume about us. These are identity issues. In fact, we so closely, I think, in our country, we want there to be very little separation between what we do and who we are. So much so that we start to think who we are is what we do. And then we start to size people up according to what they do. And judge them, look down on them. If what they do is not as good as what we do or be jealous of them, be envious if what they do is better than you get the point. It's so closely linked to our identity. You do it on a small scale even now, right? What's your name? What year are you? And what's your major? Oh, you're an education major? I'm a double E. Mm-hmm. I'm smart. Oh, you're, uh, you're studying music? Well, I'm biochem. Good for you. I don't know what it means either. (laughs) We've got different ways that we kind of size up majors to think that, oh, that means I'm or you are. I think you get the point. The thing is, in our culture, we identify ourselves. We identify ourselves by so many things. Our major, our clothes, our money, our cars, our GPA, our accomplishments, our involvement, our relationship status, our social media posts or whatever. And we look for ways to find an identity. So Jonah, Jonah ignores those first two questions, where he's from and all of that. And he, and, and, well, he begins to answer the question, where are you from first? This is saying something about what's most important to him. And above all, it's his ethnicity. As one scholar put it, since Jonah identifies himself first ethnically, then religiously, we may infer that his ethnicity is foremost in his self-identity. That's the thing, if you're following, that's what Jonah wants people to know about himself. I am a Hebrew. And now we have another hint, I think, of why Jonah is on the run in the first place. Remember last week, if you were with us, I said that Jonah isn't running because he missed God's call or that he's particularly afraid of the Assyrians. I think it's something deeper. And we're starting to see that the deeper thing for Jonah was perhaps an idol of his nationality. Who he was as a Hebrew. We first meet Jonah in the Bible in another book. It's not this one where he's supporting this, the bad king of Israel at the time, Jeroboam II, and his reform to expand Israel's uh, borders when God had not given them the direction to do that. Now, I know this sounds a little bit like history, but follow me because I think this is really helpful to understand what's going on in this book. Guess who would have been in the way of Israel's ability to expand their borders? Who? The Assyrians. 
And so now God is calling him to cross international borders. Which would prohibit them from being able to expand their power to cross ethnic lines, to cross cultural barriers, to preach the gospel even to his enemies. And that's why Jonah says no. And he goes the other way. It's not just because he fears them. It's because he hates them. Not just because they're his enemies, but because his enemies are in the way of his country's prosperity. Jonah's chief sin was his elevated love for his country over his love for the people God was calling to himself. He is a nationalist to the core. And so he runs when God calls him to love someone who's not a Hebrew Hebrew, and he hates it. He was so much more comfortable loving his own people and that's it. And so God is angry and pursuing Jonah because despite Jonah's hatred, God himself loves people in Nineveh. And it won't be long before another prophet who's greater than Jonah comes along and says, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Listen, this begs a really hard question. I think all of us need to wrestle with who do you love? Who do you love? That is really at the heart of this story. Your people only, whoever you imagine your people to be? Or are you willing to love across borders? Religious borders, ethnic borders, intellectual lines, cultural or social barriers, geographic lines, common interest borders. Are you willing to sacrifice even your own comfort to love someone who's different than you? That was at the heart of God's call to Jonah. And I think that's why Jonah runs. And why God runs after him. Now, this is why Jonah is in the storm. Because sometimes God sends storms into our lives to begin crushing our identity idols. You may think that sounds a lot like discipline, and you're, you're probably right. God disciplines those he loves. Again, this is Keller. He says storms can wake us up. To truths we would never otherwise see. Storms can develop faith and hope, love, patience, humility, and self control in us that nothing else can. So that's why Jonah is in the storm. He knows that God is after him. And so he comes up with this idea himself, right? He has this idea to throw me into the sea and you'll be okay. In other words, sacrifice me and you'll be spared. You can tell they didn't want to do it at first. They, want, they didn't want to be held responsible for his death, so they tried to keep rowing. But the storm got worse, and God wasn't giving up. So they relented and, and tossed Jonah overboard, and he sunk and sunk deeper and deeper into the sea. Now, I don't pretend to know Jonah's motives here, and actually scholars are pretty split on this. I'm going to give you a couple of these views. What was his motive in doing that? Some scholars suggest that Jonah was sacrificing himself so that others would live. That it was a really noble offer. I like that idea. But I'm not so sure. I don't see a lot of love from Jonah up to this point. Others argue, and I think this is really interesting, that it wasn't love at all that that, that led Jonah to be tossed into the sea. It was the very opposite. It was hate. Because think about it. This is good logic, right? If the prophet God has called to go to Nineveh can't go to Nineveh, 
then perhaps God won't pursue the Ninevites after all. And so it may not have been love at all. It could have been hate. I don't know. I think Jonah's motives are confusing. We're not told. But what we do know is that Jonah was sacrificed and the pagan sailors were saved. And they were saved from their physical storm in the sea. It stopped. But I think also they were saved spiritually. You get hints of this all throughout the passage. They turned to God. They began to understand his power and to fear the storm in general. And that was transformed into their fear of the Lord by the end of the passage. And after Jonah was sacrificed for their salvation, the pagans made sacrifices to the God of their salvation. So it's really funny, kind of, that Jonah's mission is already effective in bringing Gentiles to faith. Uh, Even when he wasn't trying. Because God was at work. He was at work through Jonah, even in his disobedience. And he was at work in Jonah. But not only were the pagans saved, Jonah himself was saved in the middle of the storm. He wasn't saved from it, but he was saved through it, which we'll see next week. And so this is good news. Let's think about how this applies for you. This is good news in a couple of different ways. One, because God intends to save you even in the storms, even through storms. He may not save you from them, but he could save you through them. And in fact, he he plans to think of the ways that God has perhaps already used storms in your life in college to begin breaking down some of your idols. When you work so hard on the project, you studied so diligently for that test, but you still didn't get the grade that the grade that you wanted or that you felt like you deserved. Or you didn't get the internship that you felt like you deserved. God is at work in that storm. Breaking down some idol of yours and helping you to find your real identity in him. Or when you went really hard after that relationship. And you tried to do it the right way and you felt like everything was going really well. And then it all fell apart. God is at work in that storm. Helping you to find deeper identity. Not in a relationship status, but in your status as his child above all things. This is really good news for those of you who are in Christ and an invitation. I think for those of you who don't yet know him to know that you are so loved that God will pursue your whole heart. He wants your affection so much that he will break down anything that keeps you from him. So that you can know who you really are. He knows our running And the places we run to and the ways we want to identify ourselves. In our sin, we do think that if God knows the real me, he will run very far. But the story of Jonah teaches us the exact opposite. That he does actually know the real you. And he's not waiting on you to get your life together. In fact, he's running after you. This is the deeper grace of God at work even in the storm. And not only is he pursuing you through the storm, he is with you in it. This passage has so many similarities to a New Testament story. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is in a boat. And there are so like amazing similarities between these two stories when Jesus is in the boat with some of his disciples. So here's some of the similarities. Jonah and Jesus. One, they're both in a boat. Two, uh, both boats were overtaken by a storm. And in fact, the, the way the storms are described are, are so Um, specifically similar. Then Jesus and Jonah were both asleep. In both stories, the men on the boat come and wake them up. And get this, in both stories, someone says something along the lines of, don't you care 
that we are perishing. And in both stories, there's some miraculous intervention and the sea is calmed. And then in both stories, the sailors are more afraid at the end than they were at the beginning. Miraculously similar, right? But there's one main difference. You may have picked up the difference between the two stories. It's the ending. In in Jonah's account, he says the only way that you'll be saved is if I die. And they throw him into the sea. But that doesn't happen in Mark chapter 4. Or does it? I recently heard about a Polish man named Witold Pilecki. And I'm definitely saying that right. Who, it's an amazing story. In 1940, he did something unthinkable. Polish people had heard about the horrors of Auschwitz. Mostly rumors, because no one was able to obviously go in and out of the concentration camps to know what was really going on. So Vitol, who was a Christian, worked a plan to get identification papers saying that he was Jewish. And as the Nazis were rounding up Jewish people in Warsaw, this man goes and he stands in the line. And he's put on a Nazi prisoner train and he's taken to a concentration camp. When people are trying to break out of Auschwitz, this man breaks in. On the inside, he encouraged inmates. He organized resistance movements. He smuggled out information, documented war crimes. He was there for three years. He endured intense labor. He was beaten He contracted typhoid fever and later, eventually, he was caught and he was executed for his efforts in a mass burial grave. Why would someone do something like that? You know, like, who would do something like that? Who breaks into hell to set prisoners free? Who runs into a storm to save someone that's drowning? Only love can compel action like that. Love that sounds a lot like Pilecki's own Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Listen, while Jonah's motives of why he sacrificed himself may be confusing, Jesus's motives of why he hurled himself into the middle of the storm are immensely clear from Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish. When someone came to Jesus in that storm and they said, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus stands up and he rebukes the winds. And the winds stop blowing. Here's here's what I want you to hear tonight. You need to know that Jesus cares that you're perishing. Whether that's like you're perishing because you don't know him at all or you are perishing because you are trying so hard to prove yourself and it's killing you. It's killing you. He knows that you're perishing and he cares. 
And so he moves into the storm in order to bring you out. On the cross, Jesus voluntarily throws himself into the most violent storm the world has ever known. The storm of sin and death and justice. And at the cross, he perishes so that you don't have to. On the cross, he is crushed for all of your idols and my idols so that our idols don't have to continually crush us. That we can be free from them. And where Jonah is so unwilling to cross any sort of border in the name of love, Jesus crossed all the borders to love you to himself. From heaven to earth, God became man to save even his enemies, enemies like you and me who otherwise hate him through our sin. I'll close with this picture. Back to Moana for a moment. I've been singing this song all week at the dinner table tonight. Lucy, our oldest daughter, said, would you stop singing that song from Moana? She's eight. She should be the one singing the song from Moana, but she's rebuking me at the dinner table. But uh, this song's been in my head for the last couple of weeks, and it's that scene. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I want to describe it for you. It's that scene when the lava monster seems to be about to kill Moana and Maui and the little chicken. (laughs) And there in the middle of that storm, Moana jumps off the raft and she begins to walk toward the monster. And there's even like the splitting of the sea sort of imagery. And she begins to calmly walk toward the monster and the music starts because it's Disney. But the song is so good because it's Lin-Manuel Miranda who wrote it. It is so good, y'all. Here's the lyrics that Moana begins to sing to this monster. She says, I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. That scene is so moving to me. I, I literally cried when I saw it for the first time. Because there's, there's a deep chord there that's being struck. Moana's calling out to this monster who is really actually imprisoned. It's someone who's imprisoned by her own sorrow and who's been really hurt. And she's saying, this does not define you. Your pain does not define you. Your anger, your rage does not define you. Your hate does not define you. This is not who you are. Imagine God calling out to Jonah. Jonah, you're running. That's not who you are. Your rebellion, it does not define you. Your failure, Jonah, does not define you. This is not who you are. I know who you are and I'm coming after you to remind you of who you are and to bring you to myself. And God says the same thing to you guys. I know who you are in your guilt and in your shame and your doubt and in your fears and I've come to bring you home in the middle of the storm. He's coming after you. Do you see that? Do you see the ways in which the chaos is really just God pursuing your heart? Look up and see Jesus running hard after you. That is the grace deep down for sinners like us.
Would you pray with me?